Well, I introduced myself at the start. Um, one thing I didn't mention is that I am proud to say I'm the husband of Emily, who last week did a fantastic job of introducing us to the story of Daniel. Emily shared with us about Daniel, uh, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, their trials and tribulations, serving in Babylon under the king Nebuchadnezzar and captives and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then at the start of July, I think it was, Emily called me up and said, oh, I'm thinking about speaking in August on Daniel. Are you going to do something different the week after? Or I said, actually, that I knew straight away. Like, I, What I'd love to do is do some of the weird stuff at the back of Daniel, some of the weird visions and dreams and all that things. I went off to university and studied theology, and I think from that point, I've loved just getting my teeth stuck into the most abstract, the most bizarre passages, because they're there for a reason. I have faith that the Bible has uh, got something for us in every single story it tells. And so, whereas in the past, I may have just skipped over some of these visions. And certainly, I'm, I'm guilty of that. I must have read Daniel 1 to 6 a bunch of times, and then Daniel 7 to 12, maybe one or twice. But I want to tell you today that I think there's really something important to be brought out of that second half of Daniel. What I'm going to aim to do today is introduce you to the idea of apocalyptic literature. And then we're going to seek to understand particularly Daniel 7 in its context. Uh, Daniel 7 to 12, quite a lot of it is fairly similar. With Daniel 7, I think you get a really good full flavor of these visions. Uh, so we're going to look at it in its historical context, uh, taking a bit of the approach Robbie uh, shared with us a few weeks ago, redemptive history. We're looking at the historical placement of this story and um, what that actually means. And then we're going to be taking an application of what we learn from Daniel and from Daniel 7 particularly and see what it has to say for us today because I'll be honest from the outset it doesn't sound like a lot. So let me read uh, if you have your Bibles uh, or your tablets or your phones or whatever uh, reading Daniel 7 1 to 14. Uh, I'm on the NRSV version uh, might be slightly different wording different versions but you'll get the gist of it. So in the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon Daniel had a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then, as I watched, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. Another beast appeared, a second one, that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three tusks in its mouth among its teeth and was told, Arise, devour many bodies. After this, as I watched, another appeared, like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left of its feet. It was different from all the beasts that preceded it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one coming up among them, to make room for it. Three of the earlier horns were plucked up by the roots. There were eyes like human eyes in this horn, and a mouth speaking arrogantly. As I watched, thrones were set in place. And an ancient one took his throne. 
His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I watched them because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. As I watched, the beast was put to death, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship, that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Fun stuff, right? So we're going to start off by putting this in a kind of context of its genre, which is apocalyptic literature. When you hear the word apocalyptic, I don't know what you think of. The two things that came to my mind, both films, but that's my kind of frame of reference. First is Apocalypse Now, uh, Martin Sheen, Marlon Brando film, set in Vietnam. Second was... Uh, slightly more Christian thing, a series called Left Behind. Anyone read or see Left Behind? Yeah, in the kind of 90s, early noughties. I think novel series adapted for film a couple of times, uh, notably with Nicolas Cage, talking about uh, the rapture, the end times. Yeah, the apocalypse. But the word apocalyptic comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, uh, which simply means to uncover, to unveil, or to reveal. So simple enough. Where we see apocalyptic literature, uh, I seem a bit scary, but really what it's just saying is uh, it's a type of literature which is designed to uncover, to reveal something to us. Hence, Revelation uh, being another good example of apocalyptic literature. Uh, it's one of many different genres that we, we find in the Bible. We have uh, historical accounts, we have poems, we have uh, mythology, we have uh, letters. Uh, so apocalyptic genre, uh, literature is just one other genre uh, we find dispersed amongst the Bible. Examples can be found in the book of Joel, Zechariah, Isaiah. So the, the most fully formed examples we have of apocalyptic literature are in Daniel 7 to 12. They tend to pertain to the end times, as I said, with the Left Behind series. Uh, uh, apocalyptic literature tends to focus on the end times, eschatology as it's known within theology. And there's other examples outside of the, the Bible Outside of the canon, we have the apocalypses of Peter and the apocalypses of Paul, uh, of which there are kind of large fragments available. But really, it was just a common way of writing uh, between about 300 BC and 100 AD, so a period of about 400 years. It was quite a common form of writing. This is a frame of mind they had as they wrote, thinking about these the end times, but using imagery, heavily uh, laden with imagery. But... If apocalyptic just means to uncover or to reveal, why is it that so much of the apocalyptic literature is so cryptic? Why is it so hard to understand when it's meant to be uh, an unveiling of something, some truth? Well, hopefully, the second half of Daniel 7 offers an interpretation of the vision. So I'll read that now. This is Daniel 15 to 28. Uh, so we've heard about the beasts, the four beasts rising out of the sea. Uh, we've heard about the ancient one and the, the one like human being, and all that sort of stuff. So Daniel's vision is interpreted here. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was troubled within me, and the visions of my head terrified me. I approached one of the attendants to ask him the truth concerning all this. 
So he said that he would disclose to me the interpretation of the matter. As for these four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth concerning the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, concerning, and concerning the ten horns that were on its head, and concerning the other horn which came up to make room for the three which, of them which fell out, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly and that seemed greater than the others. As I looked, this horn made war with the holy ones and was prevailing over them until the ancient one came. Then the judgment was given for the holy ones on the Most High, and the time arrived when the holy ones gained possessions of the kingdom. This is what he said. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth that shall be different from all other kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. This one shall be different from the former ones and shall, be put, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the, <coughs> excuse me, shall wear out the holy ones of the Most High, and shall attempt to change the sacred seasons and the law, and they shall be given into his power for a time, two times, and half a time. Then the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and totally destroyed. The kingship and dominion of the and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the holy ones of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here the account ends. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly terrified me, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter in my mind. So this does go and offer a few more bits of insight. Uh, it tells us about the four kingdoms and kings that will rise up. Puts in a little bit of uh, context. But it's still not particularly specific, is it? I would imagine this is because people reading this, people receiving this at the time... Uh, would have understood the imagery used. They, they knew about what he was talking, and it didn't need to say anymore because this explanation was sufficient. Unfortunately, or fortunately, but we, we need to dig a little bit deeper. We need to seek to understand Daniel 7, particularly in its historical context. I don't know if anyone knows much about the book of Daniel, uh, but it's believed to be a collection of Aramaic court tales, so uh, stories particularly based in the, the court of the king, of an empire, thought to have been expanded upon later on um, by Hebrew revelations, was probably composed in about the third or early second century BC. So this is roughly three, four hundred years after the story was meant to have taken place. The stories of the first half, so that's one to six, particularly those which Emily was talking about last week, uh, considered legendary in origin. It's not uh, intended to be a, or scholars believe at least, that it's not intended to be a historical account, but rather it's a story, a set of stories passed down through generations. Um, and the second half, uh, these visions are meant to be the work of anonymous authors in the Maccabean period, which uh, was about the 2nd century BC. That was a bit of a shock to me, but I can roll with it. But then I didn't know a lot about Maccabean period. Does anyone know anything about Michael Judas Maccabee? Nick does. Well, I'm glad of that. <laughs> Robbie's nodding his head. Has anyone seen that episode of Friends? Sorry for that horrible highbrow to lowbrow, but... Um, in Friends, it's a Christmas episode where Ross is dressed up as the holiday armadillo, trying to tell a story of the people, the Maccabees, and the Maccabean revolt. There is, in the book, in the yeah, the Catholic Bible and a few other uh, sources, there is the Book of Maccabees. 
uh, which we'll be reading a little bit of later. So thank you, Susan. That was useful. But this is the, this is the setting. This is second century, 100, uh, kind of 99 to whatever else, BC. As with a tricky time in, in Jewish history and history in general, where they used the character of Daniel um, because in the Hebrew tradition, Daniel had a reputation as being a wise seer. There's a figure called Danel, which was um, used in a, an Ugaritic myth from 2000 BC. So a long, long time before this character Daniel appears. Um, and when you read Ezekiel 14, actually, there's a little note. Ezekiel 14, 14 uh, just says, so this is in the context of Ezekiel sharing visions as well. Even if Noah, Daniel, and Job, those three were in it, they would save only their own lives by their righteousness, says the Lord God. And in the NRSV version, and maybe in some others, there's a little footnote by Daniel there, <clears throat> where it says, Daniel, or as otherwise read, Daniel, which suggests to us that this figure of Daniel, his origins go back to even the time of these Ugaritic myths, which talk about Daniel. So it's like a figure, and I was talking about this with my mum and dad. I, came, I saw the example of the hare and the tortoise. The story of the hare and the tortoise, I'm sure you're all familiar with. Yeah, one of Aesop's fables. And these are, these are things that are intended to teach us through figures that we can kind of associate with. It doesn't matter if the hare and the tortoise actually exist at any point or other, but rather the message that they tell us is the important thing. So with Daniel, evidence seems to suggest that he was a legendary figure that was used to tell this story. Has anyone here heard of a man called Antiochus IV? Robbie again. That's why I'm glad you're here, Robbie. I knew, I knew that you'd be my shining light, a star. Antiochus IV, he was a Greek king of the Seleucid Empire. I'll explain in a minute where he comes from, but uh, he was a king that was ruling over Israel and a whole region, really. But he was particularly aggressive against the Jewish people. He was threatening, really, to destroy temple worship in Jerusalem. He was a vicious leader. He basically thought a lot of himself. A lot of these ancient emperors and kings did. There was uh, language used. He called himself uh, Theos Epiphanes, which means manifest God. Um, and then he defeated the Egyptians, and he called himself some other word, uh, which meant bringer of victory. So he, he's not afraid of the limelight, is Antiochus. And essentially, he was a very powerful man. As Susan mentioned, there's a story of Maccabees, which describe some of this time and an introduction to Maccabees. Maccabees 1, Maccabees 1. There's a small passage which talk a little bit about Antiochus and the sorts of things he got up to. So I'm just going to read a small bit to you now. So if you've got your Apocrypha with you, uh, you can pull that out. But if you haven't got one of these, there's very interesting uh, Apocryphal texts. As these are books that are not found in our uh, Protestant Bibles. They're in the, in the Catholic canon. They were used historically. They were in the Bible as either an appendix to the Old Testament or um, interspersed with it. Um, but you can buy it, and it's some really interesting stuff, including the story of one Maccabees. So I'm going to read just a small bit. It describes the historical context we're in here. So after Alexander, son of Philip, the Macedonian, so that's Alexander the Great, who came from the land of Kittim, had defeated King Darius of the Persians and the Medes, he succeeded them as king. He had previously become king of Greece. He fought many battles, conquered strongholds, and put to death the kings of the earth. He advanced to the ends of the earth and plundered many nations. When the earth became quiet before him, he was exalted and his heart was lifted up. He gathered a very strong army and ruled over countries, nations, and princes, and they became tributary to him. After this, he fell sick and perceived that he was dying. So he summoned his most honoured officers who had been brought up with him from youth and divided his kingdom among them, 
while he was still alive. After Alexander had reigned 12 years, he died. Then his officers began to rule, each in his own place. They all put on crowns after his death, and so did many of their descendants after them. And they caused many evils on the earth. From then came forth a sinful root, Antiochus Epiphanes, son of King Antiochus. He had been a hostage in Rome. He began to reign in 137th year of the kingdom of the Greeks. That's 175 BC. In those days, certain renegades came out from Israel and misread many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the Gentiles around us, for since we have separated from them, and many disasters have come upon us. This proposal pleased them, and some of the people eagerly went to the king, who authorized them to observe the ordinances of the Gentiles. So they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem, according to Gentile custom, and removed the marks of circumcision and abandoned the holy covenant. They joined with the Gentiles and sold themselves to do evil. Uh, a little bit later on. So there's a, a chapter here which talks about the persecution of, persecution of the Jews. Then the king, Antiochus, wrote to his whole kingdom that all should be one people and that they should give up their particular customs. All the Gentiles accepted the command of the king. Many, even from Israel, gladly adopted his religion. They sacrificed to idols and profaned the Sabbath. The king sent letters by messengers to Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. He directed them to follow customs strange to the land, to forbid burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings in the sanctuary, to profane Sabbaths and festivals, to defile the sanctuary and the priests, to build altars and sacred precincts and shrines for idols, to sacrifice swine and other unclean animals, to leave their sons uncircumcised. They were to make themselves abominable by everything unclean and profane, so they would forget the law and change all the ordinances. He added, and whoever does not obey the command of the king shall die. So he's not a very nice guy. I don't know if you can pick out little bits from him in that, but he essentially um, interpreted Jewish resistance uh, as being motivated by their religion and their culture. So he outlawed Jewish customs, such as circumcision, dietary restrictions, Sabbath observance, and the Jewish scriptures. Most famously, um, many would argue, he built an altar to Zeus over the altar of burnt offerings in the temple, which, if you know anything about how the Jewish people felt about their temple and what that meant to them, this was, this was unspeakable evil. Daniel, in later parts of these um, visions, describes this as the abomination of desolation. And actually, it's this act of building a, a statue to, to Zeus in the temple, which is believed to have led to the revolt of Judas Maccabee, uh, which the story carries on to tell about ending with the purification of the temple uh, as it's restored. So he may have been a stereotypical emperor, big-headed, arrogant, full of kind of conceit. But what has he got to do with the, the four beasts that we've just read about and all of that crazy language? Well, it's worth stating at the outset there's multiple different interpretations of these visions. I can only offer you uh, my best agreement with what a lot of uh, scholars are saying. I'm sure there are people here who may want to believe other things, may, may understand it differently, and that's fine. I have no problem with that. There are people that will argue it in lots of different ways, but this is what I've got for you. So the concept of the four world empires, the four kingdoms that the, the visions talk about, uh, stems from Greek theories of uh, mythological history. The water we hear at the beginning tends to represent chaos in ancient literature. In fact, in ancient Near Eastern literature, there's a lot of talk about cosmic waters which separate the earth and Sheol, which was their concept of heaven. It was a dividing thing, but it was a chaotic thing out of the chaos we were created. And whilst earlier in the book of Daniel, in Daniel 2, uh, there's a dream that's interpreted with a statue, which has a lot of correlation to this. 
the symbolism of the metals in that statue uh, was drawn from Persian writings, but the four beasts uh, that we hear today in chapter 7 uh, reflects something from Hosea, which I've got for you here, Hosea 13, where it says this. So I will become like a lion to them, like a leopard I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs and tear open the covering of their heart. There I will devour them like a lion and as a wild animal would mangle them. So already you see a clear correlation between this, this imagery from Hosea and older texts that uh, the, the authors of Daniel 7 would have had at the time. They would have known well. There's a representation here of these four beasts. There tends to be agreement on, on this division of the beasts. So the lion that is described at the start is thought to be Babylon. It talks about the transformation of uh, into a lion and then being in the start of the story of Daniel, I think it's Daniel, 14, uh, Daniel 4, 16, and a little bit later. It's talked about Nebuchadnezzar being given the mind to be like a beast, and he was sent out and lived like a wild animal. If anyone remembers that from Daniel 4. Well, here we pick back up on that imagery of being a wild animal, and it's a, trans- it's a reversal of the transformation Nebuchadnezzar went under. Uh, we hear in chapter 7 about the lion being given a human mind, which reflects his regaining of sanity, perhaps. Plucked wings, uh, which looks about the loss of power, the transformation back to human state. And then Jeremiah 4.7, um, again, this is all to do with the exile in Babylon. Jeremiah 4.7 talks about Nebuchadnezzar as a lion, um, uses that same imagery, and says this, A lion has gone out from its thicket, a destroyer of nations has set out, he has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitant. So we get a, a fairly good picture from different sources of the lion representing King Nebuchadnezzar and the empire of Babylon. So after that, we have the bear, which is believed to be the Medes. In Jeremiah 51.11, there's a short passage which says this, Sharpen the arrows, fill the quivers. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. So that is the vengeance of the Lord, vengeance for his temple. It was introduced to the Medes as, a, as the next ruling empire set out to destroy the Babylonian empire. And so this imagery of a bear told to go and maul and attack is re- represented by this Jeremiah passage where it talks about the Lord stirring up the king of the Medes to destroy Babylon. So next up we have the leopard, a leopard with four heads, four wings. It's believed to be Persia, um, and we get that from Daniel 11, 2 to 7 which talks about Persia, and it says, Now I will announce the truth to you. Three more kings shall arise in Persia. The four shall be far richer than all of them, and when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up against the kingdom of Greece. Then a warrior shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and take action as he pleases. And while still rising in power, his kingdom shall be broken and dividing to the four winds of heaven, but not to his prosperity, nor according to the dominion of which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted and go to others beside these. Then the king of the south shall grow strong, but one of his officers shall grow stronger than he and shall rule a realm greater than his own realm. After some years uh, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to ratify the agreement. But she shall not retain her power, and his offspring shall not endure. She shall be given up, she and her attendants and her child, and the one who supported her. In those times a branch from her root shall rise up in his place, he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall take action against them and prevail. At the start of that little chapter, Daniel 11, verse 2, it talks about uh, that we should be four kings, and this is purportedly related to the four heads, four wings of this leopard being Persia. 
So the final one, and the, the one that's particularly important today, is this fourth beast, the exceedingly terrible, strong, all that sort of stuff. The worst-sounding one, really. And this is believed to represent Greece, particularly the Seleucid Empire, of which we heard earlier from Antiochus. Uh, there's a biblical studies professor called Amy Jill Levine who wrote this. The ten horns that appear on the beast is a round number standing for the Seleucid kings between Seleucus I, the founder of the kingdom, and Antiochus Epiphanes IV. The little horn is Antiochus himself. The three horns uprooted by the horn reflect the fact that Antiochus was fourth in line to the throne and became king after his brother and one of his brother's sons were murdered and the second son exiled to Rome. Antiochus was held, uh, responsible only for the murder of one of his nephews, but the author of Daniel 7 holds him responsible for all. Antiochus called himself God Manifest, suiting the arrogant speech of the little horn. So slowly we're piecing together this puzzle. Antiochus, this uh, emperor, being a, a, the little horn, uprooting these other horns. Amy Joel Levine saying that's his triumph is, well, his triumph is maybe a bit generous, but it's, murdering of and displacing of those in the line before him and certainly the arrogant speech which was talked about both in the first half of the, in the vision itself and, and kind of explored at the later part talking about arrogant speech that fits what we heard earlier about Antiochus how he viewed himself this kind of cult of personality he had around him the way he wanted to be viewed so hopefully that makes a little bit more sense of the four beasts to each there is a, a relevant comparison with other parts of scripture and history which uh, seem to reveal who they're talking about but what about the second half, the ancient one, the, the one like a human being? Well, the ancient one, or in some translations it will say one like the ancient of days, but the ancient one is meant to be a reflection of God. Now there's, uh, some I would say, it kind of talks about a Canaanite God, but the way it describes the, uh, the throne with wheels of fire sounds a lot like Ezekiel 1. If you've read Ezekiel, there is a, um, is a part of a vision where it talks about God's throne, which has wheels and it's, mobile, it's a mobile throne. And so this is kind of and this is another suggestion that this ancient of days, perhaps unsurprisingly for many of us, but the ancient of days talking about God. The one like a son of man, however, is an interesting one. In the NRSV, it says a human being. Uh, some translation will say one like a son of man, but it seems to be talking about a human being or, or a group of people that they ascend from earth into heaven. And the usual suggestion is that this represents a triumph of the Jewish people over their oppressors very strong, with a Christian mind, with 21st century eyes. This sounds a lot like messianic imagery, Jesus coming on the clouds, all that sort of stuff. But I must remember this actually was, was written for a group of people at an earlier point before Christ had even come. So while those things are really useful and encouraging for us, um, actually there's interpretations of that which we can, we can see. It's useful to remember that this, for those who are receiving this, this would have been an encouragement for them as a group to, to triumph over oppression. So there's one like a son of man. is supposed to be the Jewish people triumphing. The holy ones of the Most High, unsurprisingly, is, is told to represent the Jewish people who are being persecuted under Antiochus. You heard some of the things he did. But this is, again, a, a reminder to them they are, they are the most holy ones. They are most, the holy ones of the Most High. They belong to God still. Their identity is still in that place and that they will be the ones who will triumph in the end. Interestingly, a little bit at the end there where it's in the interpretation of the vision where it says about the king, about, about Antiochus, he will rule for what time, two times and a half a time. 
Now, this is probably one of the shakier bits of theology that I came across as I was researching this, but tended to be that people would say this could be, at time, would be a year. So it would be a one year, plus two years, and half a year, three and a half years, which makes sense when you see that Antiochus really was oppressing the Jewish people from about 167 to 164 BC. So the math all adds up. Also, some people would say that three and a half is half the perfect number of seven. But I'll leave that for you to decide or to read into, but... Okay, I apologise that that was quite a long, fairly rambly, incessant speech. Here's the important part, though. So if you've forgotten everything I've heard, or if you've been asleep, wake up. This is the bit to remember. This is the bit to take home. What does all of this mean for us today? Well, the people of Israel have this wonderful knack of being able to see themselves in the stories of others. In fact, when we were talking about doing women in the Bible, as I said earlier, part of that is so we can see ourselves in their stories. We can identify with what they have gone through, uh, and allow God to speak to us through that identification. But as as generations came and went, uh, the Jewish stories were remnants of their identity as a people. Uh, They're able to identify themselves with the trials of those who had come before them. You see this a lot in the Bible, particularly when it talks about God. It talks about God being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a reminder of the God who was there then, is here now, the same God, the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That was often used not even in a time where they were come, the same people who were alive coming out of Egypt, because we know many of those died in the, in the desert and didn't make it through, but this was used as a reminder of, remember that story, our story, it is ours, and that God who was there then is still here now, he's still our God. This isn't just a Jewish thing. As I was saying earlier, I, went, I studied theology at Exeter University, uh, and my dissertation was on uh, the Negro spirituals, the, the songs of the slaves, and the, as a song of worship, really, as, as an act of worship. And these songs were full of biblical allegory, full of stories in the Bible. And they sounded just like nice songs, but really for the people, they were singing them, whether they were in the plantations or serving wherever they were, particularly in the South. These songs were their way of identifying with the people in the Bible whom God had been with before, as a reminder that God is with them today. Songs talk about all sorts of different biblical figures. There's a writer called Krista Dixon who said, uh, the singers were not bothered by chronology, but a gap of two or 3,000 years of history and development between the biblical era and their present. There was an immediacy about their relationship to biblical persons, which allowed for intimacy in the midst of estrangement. So it didn't have to directly correspond to what they were going through. They could see themselves in these stories and they sang about it. They sang about crossing the Jordan and entering the promised land. There was freedom to them, the north for many. They sang about uh, Moses going down, delivering God's people out of slavery. Obvious comparisons there. They even sang about Daniel. Uh, Didn't the Lord deliver Daniel? Then why not every man, they sang. Just as they read into the story of Daniel, they could see what Daniel's story represents, the message God was speaking through that, and how it applied to them, I think that we can do the same today. So if Daniel is a legendary figure, uh, placed in the context of a well-known period of Jewish history, uh, that's done purposefully. Just as all of the Bible, regardless of genre, uh, was written for a purpose, more often than not, uh, it was intended for a specific audience as well. So the message that can be taken from Daniel was that the God who was with Daniel, with Shadrach, with Meshach, and with Abednego, in all their trials, under an oppressive system, is the same God who is with the designated recipients, uh, those in the Maccabean period, those we've heard about under Antiochus. Same God is with them in their trials, under a different oppressive regime. The visions remind them, and us, that ultimately all kingdoms will fall, and the king 
of the ancient of days will endure forever. And it's still true today, though we may now live under the reign of Boris Johnson and not King Nebuchadnezzar or Antiochus Epiphanes. God is still the God of liberation. He still hears the cries of his people and he still works for our good in all situations. So as we read these visions, don't be scared by the beasts and the uh, confusing imagery, but remember that the, the God this speaks of who is with his people, is with us now. So Lord, we thank you for this message of hope that under all oppression, in all circumstances, amongst all different trials, you stand with us, just as you stood with those who came before us. We thank you for this history that binds us and pray that we leave here today with a restored sense of trust. You are the God of history, God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And just as you served and were with them, you're with us. In your name we pray. Amen.